0: Hi, and welcome to What I'm Obsessed With Now, and our last episode in our Modern Psychology series, for now. As always, I'm your friendly host and obsessive, Byron. I'm really excited to dive into behavioral psychology, as it's one of my favorite schools of thought. The main reason is it's based in experiment and when I look at its theories, they stack up. That is not to say there aren't questions. Unlike Freud or Jung, the assertions of this school of thought is derived from experimentation rather than introspection. We move further from the more philosophical basis in psychodynamics and psychoanalytics to a more stringently scientific basis. It is interesting that many of the theories expand on areas that Freud and Jung were trying to answer. And to their credit, they were paddling in the right direction, if not on the right river. This school can be thought of as looking at the outcome to understand the process, whereas the previous schools we looked at looked at the thought process to understand the outcome. I think this shift, particularly with the technology available at the time, was the right one. It has greatly expanded our understanding of the human mind. I also feel that behavioural psychology can be thought of as Newton's theory of gravity, and the current brain mapping technology is slowly edging towards a psychological equivalent of Einstein's theory of general relativity. Maybe one day psychologists will have an equivalent of E equals MC squared to explain the human mind. I mean, I know E equals MC squared doesn't explain all of physics, but I hope you get my general gist. Now, behavioral psychology is a huge area, so it's impossible to cover all in one episode. For behavioral psychology, we will hear about four people and their contributions to the field. We'll start with Pavlov and his dogs. Watson, the father of the field, B.F. Skinner, one of the most well-known contributors, and lastly, Harry Harlow. I think you'll really enjoy this one, and it will make you look at your actions and those around you. It'll have you thinking, how am I conditioned, and what rewards do I seek? So sit back and stop dribbling. Let's get going. Behavioural psychology is about understanding our minds, through our behaviors. Easy, right? Podcast over. Well, not quite. And as we continue on our obsessive journey, what we will find is that the most simple assertions have deep, dark and complicated underbellies. The idea is to use systematic research to better understand the way the mind works. This can be seen as a contrast to the psychodynamic and analytical methods. It also strikes me as having the human species step down off the pedestal. The psychological schools before it and the philosophical theories of thought had us placed above our cousins in the animal world. Understandable, we do like to think we are special. It also makes sense that we would be different, look around us. Religion too puts humans as the special species. Almost like aliens landed on Earth. Behavioral psychology throws this out. We are like our animal friends, and in fact, we will study them to learn more about us. How sacrilegious. Freud, Jung, and the like wanted a way to understand and then help improve the mental state of us. The same is true of behavioral psychology. It is supposed that our reactions are learned, that these are patterns of behavior we can observe and understand learning how the mind works from the outside in. On the other side, treatment. It means that we can change those patterns. We have autonomy over our ingrained habits. This leads to better decisions and happier lives. It is also a marketer's dream, and Facebook has taken full advantage of this. By understanding our reactions, they are able to manipulate our behaviors, they don't need to understand the underlying cause or how this affects us long-term. For them, it's a transactional endeavour and this isn't a pile-on of Facebook or social media in general. Advertisers have been doing this for years. When I was first learning about behavioural psychology, I thought, yes, but how do you explain complex situations? The love of a child, pets included, partner, or other loved ones? How do you explain why a person would subject themselves to situations that beggars belief? Remember when I said that the simple answers are complex? Well, the complex answers are simple as well. A complex picture can be broke down into its smaller parts. It's like a painting. Even the most amazing paintings, like The Starry Night, when you stand back and look at it, it is an incredible achievement. How could anyone, particularly a man who cut off his ear in an argument about a prostitute he was in love with? But even this painting can be broken down. The closer we get, the more detail we can see. The painting, at one point seeming to be a monolith, is built stroke by stroke. True, it can be said that our behaviours are built stroke by stroke, until one day you step out and you have a person. This is why psychology is so difficult. The brain is one of the most complex structures in the universe. One day we will be able to break it down stroke by stroke. That is what the behavioral psychologist is trying to do. A challenge that will never be won but valuable in its pursuit alone. First person on our whirlwind tour of behavioral psychology is not a psychologist. Ivan Pavlov was a Russian physiologist, born 26th September 1849 in Ryazan, Russia. From an early age, Ivan demonstrated a great curiosity and intellect. He had boundless energy for research and finding out more. He swore off religion and devoted his life to science and discovering what underpins our world. This curiosity and vigour paid off in 1904 when Pavlov won the Nobel Prize in Physiology. He was awarded the prize in recognition for his work on the physiology of digestion. This area is where we are interested as well. Digestion and specifically the lubrication of it. Think of your favourite food. Mine is pizza. Now think of the most delicious pizza or insert your food. For me, it's a pizza shop we discovered by accident on a drive through Bentley in Victoria, Australia. The base is perfectly crunchy on the bottom, just the right amount of cheese and toppings. It dumps a shed load of dopamine into my brain. Now take a minute to think of yours in detail. Now is your mouth watering? I bet it is. The automatic reaction was what Pavlov discovered and it kicked off the field we are looking at. Now wipe your mouth and let's look at the discovery. The discovery of the Pavlovian condition, and what we will call classical conditioning moving forward, was done entirely by accident. Isn't that the way it always is? Pavlov was trying to understand saliva, and had inserted a tube into a dog's mouth to measure the volume when they were fed a powder made from meat. Before we move on, this episode does use animals in experiments quite extensively. At some points, it may be a bit uncomfortable. Pavlov thought that the dog would start to salivate when the food was put in front of them. That makes sense, right? The dog sees the food, knows he's going to eat, saliva is produced. But Pavlov noticed something curious. The dogs would begin to salivate when they heard the footsteps of those bringing their food. This is interesting. It may not sound it, but the stimulus transferred from the object, being food, to an associated event, the footsteps. This was the start of classical conditioning. A conditioned stimulus creates a conditioned response. It was asserted that this was a hardwired reflex, food making the dog salivate. Pavlov then tried a neutral stimulus, a metronome, and there was no response. Then he began to condition the response by making the metronome click whenever the dogs were fed. After this was repeated, the stimulus was conditioned, the conditioned stimulus was the metronome, and the conditioned response was the salivation. He also discovered the concept of temporal contiguity, which simply means the conditioned stimulus being the metronome needed to be close in time to the unconditioned stimulus. If the time was too far apart, then the reaction would not happen. The amazing thing is, the unconditioned stimulus can be removed and the reaction still occurs. And in regards to Pavlov and the bell, he did use one in his experiments. Sometimes the most consequential discoveries are the most obvious. Anyone that has a dog knows about saliva. If your dog has a favorite bowl and they see it being picked up, the saliva comes on before the food even appears. That's a conditioned response. But the amazing part of the discovery is to systematise and allow to build on. As I said before, sometimes you have to dive into the deep detail, look at every brushstroke, to understand the painting. We can view Pavlovian or classical conditioning as one of the first brushstrokes as the instigation of behavioural psychology. And in fact, the investigation of psychology by experiment. Not the first or only, but this is an incredibly important brushstroke. While Ivan Pavlov discovered classical conditioning, the father of behavioral psychology or behaviorism, which is too hard to say over and over, was John B. Watson. Interesting note, the B stands for Brodus. The 19th century wasn't the best time for names. John B. Watson was born January 9, 1878, in the small town of Travelers Rest, South Carolina. His father was an alcoholic and left the family to live with two Indian women when young John was 13. He never forgave his father. His mother seemed like no fun, a very religious woman who prohibited drinking, smoking, and dancing. Not an easy childhood, one would think. John was brought up and subjected to harsh religious training. This treatment eventually caused him to have a great dislike for religion, and he became an atheist. This is a point of conjecture, but I think there is something to the idea of scientific discovery going hand-in-hand hand with a separation from religion, particularly important in the study of us humans. The Bible treats us as something special, above and separate from our fellow creatures. Stopping this belief allows a freedom in researching how and why we think. Again, just a personal opinion, but something to think about. Let me know what you think on social media. He married Mary X. I I mean, proving my point of the issue with their names. They had two children, Paul and Mary. The latter of the two attempted suicide. Mary II, or Mary Jr., had a daughter, Mariette who suffered psychological issues she attributed to being raised with her grandfather's theories. What theories? Well, just you wait. She is an Emmy-winning actress, bipolar advocate, and founder of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. He later married a student, Rosalie Rayner, after an affair that became Front Page News. They had two sons raised with his theories and both attempted suicide. This is a good reason not to experiment on your children, I would say. Now you know a bit more about James Brodus Watson, let's look at his contribution to psychology. In 1913, Watson wrote the article, Psychology as the Behaviourist Views It, later termed Behaviourist Manifesto. Catchy, I guess. This was the birth of behavioural psychology he believed that psychology was an experimental branch of the natural sciences. With the mind to the scientific method, he put forward that a theory should be able to be observed and scientifically measured. Unlike the Freudians who wanted to understand the mind, thinking and emotions, if you want to measure any of these, you should do so by observing the behaviour. Theories should be parsimonious, no not the fruit. Okay, that was a play on the fact that parsimony and persimmons kind of sound the same. That's the high-quality jokes you get. Well, you paid nothing, so beggars can't be choosers, right? Parsimony means when you look at the data and you have multiple theories, the simplest that fits the data is the one to choose. Watson believed no matter how complex the behaviour, it could be reduced to a simple stimulus-response association whether that be Pavlovian classical or operant conditioning, known as learning theory. We know what classical conditioning is. The, a stimulus creates a response. The sight of the unconditioned stimulus to food creates a response of saliva. You introduce a neutral stimulus, pair it with food, by ringing a bell whenever food is present, and there you have a conditioned response to the stimulus. Bell goes, you drool. Operant conditioning is about consequences. When you do the dishes, I give you a cookie. Therefore, you'll do the dishes because cookies. It's how we train dogs. Sit and then a treat. And eventually, you can remove the treat. Now, you can have a reinforcement to encourage a behavior or a punishment to reduce the behavior. Coupled with this can be positive or negative. This always confused me because positive means adding a stimulus and negative means removing an old stimulus. So not if it's cookies or chili, but give or take. I see classical as the stimulus coming before the behavior and and operant coming after the behavior. A key to the ability to test these theories was the belief that animals and humans learn in the same way. This meant that you could experiment on rats and pigeons and extrapolate. Think of all the people they kept out of cages. One of Watson's interesting theories was how emotions were conditioned. Remember, we are looking at the external outcomes of emotions. Watson believed there were three unlearned emotional reactions at birth. Fear. This comes on by two unconditioned stimuli, a sudden noise or loss of physical support. Now, as you get older, lots of things scare you. I can't deal with nails coming off backwards. How do you explain this? These stimuli are learned. We are conditioned to be afraid of things. Unlike Young's ideas of the collective unconscious, believing fears were inherent to all of us, Watson thought they were conditioned. Next up is rage. This unconditioned stimuli is constraint. Being held down and unable to move will cause screams. I mean, not really. Have you seen babies? They love to be wrapped up and kids love to be tucked in. To a point, as we age, this feeling of constraint is transferred to that of being forced to do things we don't want to do. So we can be conditioned to feel rage when forced to do things against our will. This sounds a lot like a reaction to lack of control. That, I can believe, control causes beings to do strange things and rage is one of them. The last on our emotions trip is love. This is an unconditioned response to being tickled, patted, or lightly stroked, laughs and smiles all around. And all those who think they have a special bond with their kid, Watson believed that infants didn't love anyone in particular, that they are conditioned to love their parents. After all, they are the faces they see all the time. And again, as we grow up, this feeling is conditioned to other things, peoples, and in my case, my little chihuahuas, rabbit and parrot. Watson believed that these are all associated with mother, which to anyone that didn't have a mother doesn't make sense. But he was a man of his times. And honestly, what is it with psychologists and mothers? Watson's thoughts on children child rearing and experiments go away to making me believe he was a bit of a prick. Possibly as a result of his less than ideal childhood, he has some interesting ideas of kids, and ethics weren't really his go-to. Okay, so he had some interesting ideas on child rearing, let's take a look. If you are in the family way, I'd get a second opinion before implementing any of these. First off, he viewed raising kids as an experiment and did so with his children. Considering that three out of four tried to end their own lives, I'm not sure this was the best strategy. Starting on a positive, Watson believed that negative emotional reactions were to be kept at a minimum. The idea was to stay positive and have a comforting home. He thought loud and sudden noises should be avoided and keep things that could hurt them out of reach. Now, the second is just common sense, but loud noises. I remember going to school with kids who were startled easily, and let's say it was fun to scare them. And when it comes to tantrums, just avoid them. He believed that they should be encouraged to take charge of things that would cause tantrums, like making them the masters of their own bedtimes and baths. He did say that they will still happen, you can't control everything. Sounds well and good, but kids are crazy. There are enough videos online of kids having tantrums because a leaf touched their foot to convince me that this advice does not work outside the lab. Now this theory is followed by way too many hippies that think kids are smart enough to make their own choices. I'm not sure all adults are. Dr. Watson wasn't the warmest guy either. He believed love was just a reaction to a stimulus and that you shouldn't love the kid too much because if you'd love the kid too much, they'll grow up being reliant on being loved. Jokes aside, there is a limit to how dependent a child should be on their caregivers, and this changes throughout their stages of life. Whilst I think there is something in there, it is a hammer where a microscope is needed. To illustrate this point, here is one hell of a quote. Let your behaviour always be objective and kindly firm. Never hug and kiss them. Never let them sit in your lap if you must. Kiss them once on the forehead when they say goodnight. Shake hands with them in the morning. Give them a pat on the head if they have made an extraordinarily good job of a difficult task. I think with how his children struggled with mental illness and the way this hits when you say it out loud, this advice seems to miss one important part of human development and that is the human element. If you raise your children like this, you are not going to have happy children. Before we leave Watson, I think it's important to mention his little Albert experiment. His ignorance of the effect of his experiments can be seen here. After you hear this, you will be disturbed to know that his child-raising books were hit, that is, after he went into marketing, which was probably a good move. The experiment's aim was to condition a phobia in a child. They gave Albert a pseudonym, a white lab rat to play with. The child was 11 months at the time. He loved the little creature. Every time he touched the rat, let's name him Raymond. Raymond the rat because everybody loves. Okay, so every time Albert touched Raymond, they would make a loud sound by hitting a suspended metal bar with a hammer. Surprise, Albert got scared and cried. After this happened a number of times, Albert, whenever he saw his friend Raymond, would get scared and try and get away. Interestingly, for the sociopaths among us, Albert generalised this fear to other furry objects like bunnies and puppies. Even a sealskin coat. Maybe Albert started Peter. This would make a lot of sense. They then stuck cotton balls onto a Santa mask, but luckily Albert didn't fear this. To recap, Watson conditioned an 11-month-old to be fearful of cute puppies and bunnies, all in the name of science. Part of the plan was to desensitise Albert. But they ran out of time, so a man went through his life being fearful of fluffy bunnies and puppies. Now you see why it was a good thing he went into advertising. Stopped traumatising children, just made people buy cigarettes and alcohol. What could go wrong? Our next important person to look at is Berhaus Frederick Skinner, or better known as B.F. Skinner, thankfully. I'm telling you, old-timey names are odd. Skinner is my favourite of the behavioralists, and is incredibly instrumental to the field. I've always found his work to be informative, and it holds up well. Skinner was born March 20, Sussequena, Pennsylvania, and lived to the ripe old age of 86. Skinner grew up in a religious home and, like Watson, became an atheist. Skinner was an ingenious child and seemed to have a normal upbringing, nothing like the challenges Watson grew up in. Perhaps this stability creates more ethical researchers. Let's find out. A detail that might explain my admiration of him, after graduating Harvard, he tries to write a great American novel. He got disillusioned by his literary skills and gave up. He called this The Dark Years. And I mean, I feel him. Skinner read Watson's Behavioralism, and this led him to study psychology. He received his PhD from Harvard in 1931, and then went on to teach at a number of universities. He eventually found his way to Harvard, and remained there until he retired in 1974. Through his career, his contributions to psychology and more specific, behavioral psychology, became known as Skinner's behavioralism. Skinner brought together the two conditioning principles, classical conditioning, he termed respondent behaviors, and operant behaviors, a.k.a. operant conditioning. Nothing groundbreaking just yet. Skinner brought these two ideas together in his study of behavior. He was guided by three questions. The first being, where does operant behavior start? Where does it come from? His explanation to this is simple and similar to evolution and makes a lot of sense. You do the things that give you positive reward and ignore the things that give you a negative consequence. It is simple and profound in the same way that evolution is. An organism evolves because those that do not adapt die out, leaving the ones that do. In the same way, behaviours that are reinforced remain and others die out. The second question, how is operant behaviour controlled? Skinner said that a stimulus will control an operant if it is present when the response is reinforced. Again, it's simple, the control comes from the conditioning. If it is not there, then there is no control formed. This developed into his three-term contingency, describing how behavior, its consequence, and the environmental context relate to each other. These concepts developed into his three-term contingency, describing how a behavior, its consequence, and the environmental context relate to each other. There are three components. The first, the antecedent. This is the stimulus that appears and indicates that a reinforcement or punishment is coming depending on the behavior displayed. To illustrate, let's look at my parrot truffle. To be clear, when working with your pets, positive reinforcement is the way to go. Let's describe how I taught truffle to step up onto my finger. The antecedent stimulus is the presentation of my finger. Next comes the behavior, in this case, truffle stepping up onto my finger. Last comes the consequence. Now, this can be a reinforcement or a punishment. In this case, we want to reinforce the behaviour and give him his favourite treat, a sunflower seed. So, the ABC is A for antecedent, presenting my finger, B for behaviour, truffle stepping up, and C for consequence, and that is a tasty sunflower seed. The last of the three questions is how complex behaviour is explained. A question we have touched on with my brush stroke method. One of his theories he termed chaining and it broadly matches my explanation. He posited that one reinforcement can also reinforce further behaviour. These behaviours chaining one to the next. He believed more complex and longer chains can be created with more stimuli and responses. Truffle can jump onto my finger Spin around and say, hey baby, and get a treat. But Skinner acknowledged that some behaviours are too complex for this explanation and introduced the concept of rule-governed behaviour. This is any behaviour that is influenced by verbal antecedents, following instructions, basically. These can be someone telling you something or internal instructions. This is a true statement that we have all experienced but I think there is still an element of chained behaviour here. We learn to respond to these stimuli because there is a payoff. It may not be apparent like a seed, but something like strengthening social positioning. I guess you could say I'm a fan of chaining. You will see these questions popping up as we move through Skinner's behaviourism. An area Skinner dedicated a lot of study to was reinforcement. Now, it is key to behaviourism. ...because reinforcement either causes or stops a behaviour. I remember first learning about reinforcement theory. I thought it was going to be boring, but it wasn't and isn't. We are going to look at reinforcement to understand the concept. Then on to the meat of this stew, schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement comes in two flavours, positive or negative. Positive reinforcement can come in the form of praise or food. It is something that the subject wants and as such, when received, creates a happy feeling. For me, it's food. When my wife and I go shopping, about an hour in, she stops and gives me food. I know this is her positively reinforcing my behavior, and I don't care because it works. It makes me happy and gets another hour before I start to grumble. The second being negative reinforcement, Skinner says it's synonymous with punishment. While positive reinforcement is a warm voice telling you good job, keep it up, negative reinforcement is a shrill voice and a slap to the face telling you to cut it out. Positive encourages and negative suppresses. Skinner said that suppression was temporary and often had unwanted consequences. Once the negative consequence is removed, the behavior often returns. This is why positive reinforcement is more ideal. The consequences of punishment can be aggression or fear attachment. I hope this convinces wives out there with husbands who have short tempers and attention spans that a treat for behaving is much better than a whack on the nose, hypothetically of course. Jade, keep feeding me. The next section is absolutely fascinating because it doesn't act as you would expect, which for me is the most exciting thing to learn. It also gives us a glimpse into why we and those around us may respond to a stimulus. I'm guessing there is a lot of attention to these concepts by people in social media and advertising. The schedules of reinforcement were developed because it was obvious to Skinner that behavior is reinforced multiple times. He worked with Dr. Charles Foster and did an extensive analysis of reinforcement. To measure the effectiveness of reinforcement, they are measured in two ways. Response rate is the rate at which the desired behaviour is performed. This second is extinction rate, which is the rate at which the desired behaviour dies out once reinforcement is stopped. These will be our measures to see which of the following is the winner of schedules of reinforcement the game. I'll keep the ratings to the end, so pick your favourite to win as we go along. The first is continuous reinforcement. Every time the subject performs a behavior, they are rewarded. I think this is the one that people think of when they consider training and how to get the best results. If you want to teach your dog a trick, this would be giving them a treat every time their fluffy little butts touch the ground. The next two schedules of reinforcement sit under the umbrella of interval schedule. This is when the reinforcement is based on a time interval. The first is fixed. Interval Schedule In this one, the reinforcement is presented at fixed time periods as long as the desired behaviour is made. If you want your dog to stop barking and you give them a treat every 5 minutes as long as they don't bark. If they bark, they need to wait for the next 5 minutes. I don't want to sway your choice on the winner, but let me tell you it does not work on chihuahuas. The second of the interval schedules is a variable interval schedule. In this one, instead of the time interval being fixed, as an example, every 5 minutes, the time interval is unpredictable, 5 minutes now, 2 minutes next, and 10 minutes after that. Keeping the subject on their toes or paws. This one also does not work on chihuahuas, and I'm starting to think they may not be the best to measure off. The last sits under the umbrella of ratio schedules. This is where the reinforcement is applied after a number of times the desired behaviour is performed. The first of these is the fixed ratio schedule. As the name would apply, this is when the reinforcement is given after the behaviour is performed after a set number of times. As an example, teaching Freddie to hug Lily when asked, who's your best friend? If he does it three times, he gets a treat. To be honest, Lily is too impatient and we'll just grab him before we can get to three and then demand a treat. So I haven't been able to test this one out just yet. The last of our schedules of reinforcement is variable ratio schedule. And this occurs when the reinforcement occurs after a random number of behavioural responses. The best example of this that I have heard of is pokey machines. And for those outside of Australia, slot machines. We tend to name things as if they're in a kid's TV show. Okay, now for the time you have been waiting for. Who is the winner? To get the results, I am employing a very scientific method. I am taking response rate and extinction rate and assigning a 1, 2 or 3 to each. The faster the response, the higher the score, the reverse for extinction rate. Now let's put it into the computer. In last place continuous reinforcement with two points, bad on both fronts. In fourth place fixed interval, did medium on both measures. In third fixed ratio, has a good response and a medium extinction. And in a very close finishing, second is variable interval which means our winner is variable ratio. both of the variables scored a 3 on both measures. But variable ratio just eked out a win because in a number of articles, it's put forward as extremely hard to extinguish. So I gave it a 3.1. Some may say it's cheating, but we need a winner. The articles all echo the same message that due to the variable nature, the subject is more likely to continue the behavior because they are used to not receiving the reward every time. This was something that makes sense when you think about it but is surprising the first time you hear it. You would think the one treat for one behaviour works the best. It would reinforce stronger, but it performed the worst. This was an interesting outcome when I heard it. Delving deeper, if the positive reinforcement is the hope or anticipation of the treat, then when you don't receive it, you keep trying because you know it will come at some stage. Not receiving it isn't a shock. And you are less likely to see extinction because there is always the hope that the treat will be materialized. That is the way I've made it make sense in my head, anyway. I mentioned pokies slash slot machines earlier. A number of studies have shown if you pay out at a fixed rate, people's interests go down. When you make it variable, interest goes up. This is being used with great success in the gaming industry. The machines are built on algorithms. They pay out more or less depending on variables like time and clientele. So the random is not really random. When you stop and think about it, you are going to see this everywhere. You're welcome. From the time we are dedicating to Skinner, you can probably tell he's my favourite. You could say I'm a Skinnerian, even if that does sound like a cult that steals people's skin. Before we jump off, I want to share with you two of his innovations. The first one we will look at is the Skinner Box. His surname really does not lend itself to friendly devices. It is also known as the Operant Conditioning Chamber, which also doesn't sound great. He developed the Skinner Box while a graduate student at Harvard. The basics of the box is an interactive element at one end, for rats, a lever and pigeons had a disc on the wall. The box allowed for a stimulus to be applied, a light or sound, and then a little shoot to give a treat. There was also the ability to punish through electric shock, which is pretty horrible. Why is the Skinner box such a great invention? Well, it brought behaviour into a clinical setting. It allowed for schedules of reinforcement to be programmed precisely. This clinical approach allowed theory to be tested. It did have its drawbacks, And we see this whenever you move observation into the lab. It measures a specific behaviour in isolation. But that is not how the real world works and can miss interactions. That being said, the systemic measuring of behaviour has given us a wealth of knowledge to build on. The second one is serious. But as I tell you about it, you're going to think I'm joking. I promise I'm not joking. This one relates to World War II. And Skinner was working with the US Navy. What do you do when you need to attack German ships? Well, if your name is Burhaus, you initiate Project Pigeon. What, the flying rat, you say? Skinner taught pigeons to peck at pictures of enemy ships on a screen. They pecked on the screen and they got a seed. He conditioned the response and those pigeons were German pecking machines. Next step, you put three pigeons in the nose of a missile. Yeah, you heard right. The nose cone was broken into three sections, a pigeon in each. A distant image is beamed in front of the pigeon, and if the pigeon saw a German, they pecked feverishly. The missile moved in that direction. Now you have a pigeon-guided missile. If you thought the Spitfire brought down the Germans, it was really pigeons. Eh, No, not really. Even though it proved to be effective, it never went into battle the Navy decided to pursue more conventional guidance systems. I mean, war is far from funny, but pigeon-guided missiles does break up the Nazis in death. And what did Skinner think of how this all went? Well, in a giant act of stating the obvious, he said, our problem was no one would take us seriously. I mean, I understand how it works, believe it would work great, and yet I laugh at the thought. On a positive note, Think of all the pigeons who were able to come home to their families from war. The next time you complain about a pigeon crapping all over the place, remember his great-grandfather could have been a war hero. Not the way I thought we'd end the segment on one of my psychology heroes, but here we are. War hero pigeon poop. The last person we'll look at is Harry Frederick Harlow. Normal name if not for the Harry Harlow alliteration. Okay, this one is a hard one, and I include it here because his work on cognitive and social development is important. The way he did it is absolutely heartbreaking, so be prepared. To understand his contribution, we will look at his most famous experiments, the monkey studies. Now, you'll notice that this view is more high level because delving into the detail again is depressing and makes me sad. Harry Harlow wanted to understand attachment and what causes it. The going theory was that attachment is developed through food. If you think back to Freud, he believed the first year revolved around eating. With this in mind, it makes sense that attachment would be the result of feeding. I mean, I attach to people who feed me. How do you test this theory? He took rhesus monkeys, the cutest monkey, and separated them at birth from their mothers. He then provided them with a metal mother who provided milk and a softer mother covered in cloth who didn't provide food. What they observed was the baby monkeys preferred the soft mother, only going to the metal mother for food and then back to the cloth mother so they could cuddle. This goes against the idea that attachment is food-driven and if you have ever cuddled with a baby, you will see this. But to scientifically prove this added a step in our understanding of development. Harlow also observed something interesting about how these babies developed. To perform these experiments, he needed access to baby monkeys and as such had a colony. He found that these monkeys raised by cloth mothers were reclusive and had difficulty interacting socially. They also found babies who were raised by their mothers but no one to play with displayed fear and aggression. This demonstrates the need for social interactions. It reminds me of the old saying, it takes a village to raise a baby. Probably more clear, it takes a village to raise a healthy baby. What we can take away is, more social interactions create more healthy attachments and behaviour. As you can imagine, he came under criticism for his practices. Their transferability to humans, one, that I think is not entirely fair, but I think what most will agree with is the way he treated the monkeys was frankly cruel. He was deliberately shocking, naming his experiments and components in ways that would shock. It makes you question whether he missed out on a soft mother. Before we leave this psychological school and bid farewell to our psychology series, I wanted to share some thoughts on behavioural psychology and where it sits today. Behaviourism is not considered a complete answer to the human mind, which isn't a surprise. It draws its conclusions from animal and lab studies. This calls into question the external validity, that being how the results of these studies can be generalized to the world outside the lab. Whilst I do not believe that this explains all of human behavior, I do think it describes a vast amount of it, also important because of how it introduced the scientific method to psychology. A new science fighting for legitimacy. Once the field belonging to philosophers, moved into the lab and the scientist. There are areas where this school explains and can allow for us to change our behaviour. One we have touched on, gambling. Remember, the strongest reinforcement schedule was the variable ratio, being the one where reinforcement was given at random times. Besides gambling, there are many areas where reinforcement is used. Dieting and social media are two that come to mind. Understanding this concept allows for treating psychologists to be able to help those suffering. Many programs have been made based on theories that grew out of behavioral psychology. It also gives you tips on how to improve behavior of those you love. Now, I don't advocate practicing on those around you, although I would be curious if you do. Only positive examples, please. Maybe start on your pets. I try this, and it works, to a degree. Now I have mentioned that my little Chihuahua Lily is smart, borderline genius, and I think she has worked out my tactics. Or she is using behavioral psychology on me. Either is possible. I'd be curious to hear if you use these techniques on your pets. Let me know. Now it's the time where we leave psychology series. For now. Being the expansive subject that it is, we will be back and look at other fields and their applications. I hope you enjoyed this introduction to the science of psychology, and I really think that psychoanalysis, psychoanalytics and behaviourism gives us a view of how psychology became a science. Not necessarily the start of humans thinking about human thought, but the start of this science. Freud led this revolution, and while he has a huge number of issues with his theories, his contribution cannot be ignored. Is it not amazing the amount of terms that have made their way into common language? His popularization of talk therapy was incredibly important for the health of all of us. Study after study shows this is one of the best methods to help mental health. Jung, the second of the dynamic duo, extended where Freud started. I also think it was important the way he tried to explain our shared experiences. While wrong in most cases, this social focus took an incredibly important step forward. Social psychology is an area we will touch on. I think Jung was looking at something important to describe our thoughts and behaviours. I just believe his view was off. Lastly, behaviourism brought this thinking into the sciences and it's a personal favourite when I think about people's behaviours. While it has its issues, it holds a great amount of value. We will keep searching for the psychological school that explains human thought. More likely, it will be a combination, but the hunt is on, and I will continue to delve and share those with you. I really hope you found these three episodes interesting, and you got something out of them. One last point is to say if you have or have had mental health issues, please seek help. We all have challenges at times, some greater than others. There is help, and this study of the human brain is there to help us. It is there to help you. If you need it, please reach out. We are all in this together. Thank you for joining me, and like usual, to catch the future episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcasting app, leave a rating for the show to grow our obsessive community, follow on the socials and join your fellow obsessives links in the show notes until next time i'm byron i'm well trained by a chihuahua named lily and i'll speak to you on the next episode Produced and edited by Byron Gap for Pinchicus Media. Sound designed by Lily and Fred. They designed the barking. I edit it out. Check out the full credits in the show notes and how to get in touch. Theme music from MixKit.co.